small place, Chris. Come on. We little. <laughs> We're cozy. We're cozy. Good morning. Right. Good morning right? <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody. Small but mighty. Small but mighty. Amen. All right. Everyone can hear me okay? Excellent. Wonderful. Well, welcome to Pillar Church of Oceanside. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14 this morning. We can open those up. All of our scriptures will be on the screen. But before we get started, I did want to give, uh, Trace has done this two weeks in a row, and uh, not my chance to do it. Uh, by show of hands, how many people have started watching the, the show called The Chosen? So we're less than half, but we've got a good number. It is phenomenal. Yeah. Now... You would expect, I've, we've all gone to churches, it seems to be Christians have to support other Christian things. It's kind of what we have to do, right? There's like these unwritten codes. All guys stick together, right? Out of shape guys stick together. <laughs> Marines stick together, sailors. Everyone's got their thing. So you said, oh, if, if Christians come out with a new show, if you're a pastor, you have to say it's good, right? I'm here to tell you that 99% of Christian programming is completely corny and cheesy. And I feel bad. I'm very harsh on Christian programming. I always roll my eyes at the bad production value of the cheesy dialogues. I'm sorry to say that. I'm very critical of Christian music because I think you guys are just trying to rip off secular artists, right? Like nobody does anything original. And if you haven't seen it because you've been burned by Christian media before like I have for decades, the chosen is not that. Phenomenally well done. And uh, it is hard to get me to cry. I'm not like a stoic man. I'm not, you know, actually I wasn't a Marine or anything like that. I'm just not a crier by nature. This just happens to be who I am. And we watched when I, Jesus first healed the leper. We, both of my wife and I just like tears welling up in our eyes. Like, it does such a phenomenal job of showing the humanity of the gospel, of Jesus, of, of the people. A lot of times we, we read the Bible and our English version, you know, if we have the King James, you know, written, written, you know, 1611, right? So we, and even our modern translations based on ancient Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, we have this idea of a very stoic Jesus, right? It's because we're reading the text in a certain way. We have a certain mindset of how we see Jesus and how we see these things played out. But when you can physically see, it does a beautiful job of this guy, that this, this first leper that was healed, he's... He's selling everything he has. I don't want to ruin it for you, but if you've read the Bible, it's already ruined for you. <laughs> but in the show, it shows him selling everything he's got. And the sleeve actually is pulled back, and you see just the smallest spot of lepers. And everyone starts to shun this guy. You feel bad because he's selling his tools. He's a craftsman. And it's just the start of leprosy. By the time he finds Jesus, you see his skin fall away, right? Like it's, he's lost everything. He's in rags, and he's running through the desert and encounters Jesus. And I just never thought about it like this. Like, I always focus on how awesome Jesus is, how powerful he is. But it's kind of harsh that I never thought about this guy's life was completely ruined, right? He went from being able to support his family, be a part of the community. All of a sudden, he's outside the community. And he's dying, right? He can't be near his loved ones. I mean, I want to cry thinking about it now. I just never saw the humanity of this woman. And the compassion that nobody wants to touch you or be near you. Audrey and I were joking. It's like having COVID in 2021, right? Like, oh, everyone steps back real quick. And Jesus just, everyone is stepping back, and this one man steps forward. The guy hasn't been touched. Jesus touched. And it's, it's just beautiful. It's just done so well. Um, so there's my shameless plug. Okay? Uh, uh, I think we're going to order some copies here, some DVDs and Blu-rays. So if you don't have access to the Internet, uh, we're going to have some copies we're going to loan out. Because we, we do think it's that important. It's, uh, it's just something I think we can all get behind. Anyways, let's go to John chapter 14. Okay, so let's catch us back up on what's happening here. We're, we're working our way through John. We started at the beginning of the year. We're in chapter 14, if you're uh, relatively new to joining us. Uh, John is kind of unique because the first half of the book of John is in public ministry. The second half actually explores Jesus' last week on earth. And we're at the last week. We still got a lot of chapters to go. We get a very in-depth view of what's happening in Jesus' life and his teachings, his conversations with his disciples. Two weeks ago, Jesus said the last things he would say to, to the public, to the Jews. And now uh, the scene is set up as Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. 
he's had the Last Supper uh, with them. Uh, he's sent up Judas to betray him, right? He dips in bread. Trace covered that last week. Uh, so Judas is on his way to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus is continuing the conversation with the rest of the disciples now. Uh, uh, right before this, uh, uh, Trace also covered last week that Peter had said, wherever you're going, Jesus, I'm going to go with you. And Jesus said, look, you can't follow me. He said, you will eventually follow me, but not right now. So Jesus is clearly talking about, you can't follow me now because I'm going to my death. Right? So that's what has happened. Let's pick it up in John 14, verse 1. It says, Jesus speaking here, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to the Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know uh, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The works that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The words I speak. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Please bow your heads. Father, enlighten your word to us. Jesus, would you please show us what you were talking about? These words have been recorded throughout all of eternity for us to learn from, for training, for correction. Jesus, just use this next half hour with us to, to show us, through your spirit, the heart of this message. Would you please use me, Father God? Would you not let my personality get in the way of your message? Lord, may anything that is false fall away, Father. May the truth remain that our lives can be changed through the teaching and preaching of your word. We love you. Thank you. Church said. Amen. Amen. Let's go back to 14.1. So what we're going to do today is we don't have a lot of text, but we're going to kind of almost a line by line, and we're going to group some of these thoughts together. Um, the idea of when the elders get up here and we preach the word is obviously the first things first is to glorify Jesus, right? But, but the intent is always is an understanding of the story. We want to walk you through, we point to things. Um, but scripture, is, uh, scripture preached on a Sunday is never alone. It's part of a big story, right? So we always want to harken back to the bigger picture. Like we, we narrow in on some verses, but the teaching is always best when it pulls back and you can see the big picture of what Jesus is talking about, right? So the expression would be, we don't want to be lost in the weeds, right? We can, scholars and, and Supposed deep thinkers like to get hung up on one verse or one word, right? Well, how can we translate this? Well, what did he mean by this? And we get hung up. But sometimes if you just pull back and you read six verses, you can you can tell what Jesus is talking about, right? So we're going to get a little bit in the weeds, but we want to spend our time kind of pulling back and thinking about, what's he saying? What, what does this mean for us? Like, this is written for us. He told it to the disciples, but you and I have a very clear takeaway here. I think it's wonderful. So let's start at 14 verse 1. Let's get in the weeds. He says, let, your, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, this is interesting. is because Jesus says, first thing, don't let your hearts be troubled. Right? So he just got done telling Peter, look, you can't go where I'm going. You will eventually. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But this is, it's interesting because if you go to John 13, 21, just right before this, you find out that Jesus was troubled in his heart, his spirit. It says, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. 
testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus is experiencing this emotion that he's now in turn telling his disciples, don't do this, right? Is it wrong to be troubled in your heart or your spirit? No, this is a human emotion. We, has anyone ever got bad news or just wrecked them? Yes, most of us, right? Or you are worried about something that's going to happen. That worry comes on you when you're troubled in your heart, in your spirit, in your mind. Jesus speaks, he says, don't let your heart be troubled, right? So these are things we have to learn to control these things, but having the emotion is not wrong, right? Some people like to say, because you're troubled in spirit, oh, the Bible says don't do that. Go back a chapter and say, no, this is actually the third time Jesus was troubled in his heart and spirit, and the most troubling in his heart is about to come the night before he's crucified, right? Where he's sweating blood, like working. I mean, he's troubled about what is to come. But remember, the Lord says, don't let it, right? So we can control these things. But why would the disciples' hearts be troubled? They don't know this yet, and they still can't see it. But their faith is going to be tested with the death of Jesus. So they've been following this man. They're calling him the Christ, he's the Messiah. And so far, Jesus has done what he's wanted. He heals what he wants. He goes where he wants. They try to capture him. The Bible says he slips out, right? He could could have a crowd, and he miraculously will just walk through the crowd. Jesus walks on water. He's awesome, right? This is truly the Messiah. But once he gets betrayed over, it it seemingly is going to start going against him. He'll be arrested. He'll be beaten. He'll be mocked. He'll be hung on the cross and he'll be killed. And it's going to cause a real crisis because it's like, was this really the Messiah, Right? It sounds easy, but you imagine Paul, this guy that's done all these things for three years, and now he's going to take a beat down. Preordained, one might I add, but it's going to happen. So he says, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, why would he say that? It's because these are, are what religion and nationality are these people he's speaking to. They're Jews, right? Like there's 12 Jewish men. He's like, look, I already know you believe in God. Keep believing in me. This is really what it's saying, right? Like, your hearts are about to be troubled by what you're going to see. Your faith in God is there, and you have to keep your faith in Him, right? So it loses this translation, believe in God, believe in me. And this is what he's getting at, right? You're going to see some things, and it's going to cause you to doubt who um, and, Okay, let's look at the next one. John 14, 2 through 4 says, In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so... What I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Alright, so this is, to me, this is the stuff I like to talk about because there's a lot of confusion on some of these verses. In the, the King James, how many translations say, in my father's house are many mansions? Has anyone ever heard that before? My father's house are many mansions. Yeah, this is kind of a popular teaching is that when we get to heaven, there's a big home waiting for us, right? When I came to faith, that's what I heard. And for years and years and years, I'm like, well, there's a mansion in the sky waiting for me somewhere. The problem, of course, is the Bible. When we get into this thing, it's like, oh, no, we're going to see some things about this. Is you know, the idea of a mansion, first of all, in our context, like, is there sheetrock in heaven? Is there electricity in heaven? Like, whatever we picture is not what was being talked about here in the text. So, more modern translations, the ESV here says there are many rooms, which is actually the correct translation of it. So, we won't get into why Tyndale and the King James and all these guys have the word mansions. There's based upon the Greek word. Uh, but follow me on this one. This is a marriage metaphor, is what's happening here. Is when uh, a Jewish uh, man would get married to his bride, he actually goes away to build the house for him and his wife to live in. And they would build it next to the father's property. Here's a fun word for you. Patrilocal. Have you ever heard this before? I like using big words. It makes me sound smart. I'm not smart. I read this online. But patrilocal just means like uh, you live in proximity to your father. Patrilocal. Awesome. Now you have a cool word. Just throw it out there next time you're in a Bible study. It's like, this is an example of something. Patrilocal. Uh, you live next to your dad, right? Uh, but that's what the custom was back then. And so... If you had money, uh, your father would have a courtyard and you would actually build your house. But most people didn't have a lot of money. 
And they would actually just build a room out of their parents' house. Right? So Jesus says, here, look, I'm going away to prepare a room for you. Right? Now, look at the text. He says, I'm going to prepare a room for you. I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The idea is like, it's like look guys, like when I leave, we're going to live together. When you finally do follow me, we're together. The point of the text is not to tell us what our abode is going to be like in the afterlife. The point of the text is whatever happens to us, we will be with him. Right? Now why does God use a marriage metaphor? Well, this is maybe lost on us, but to the Jewish people, God has always called Israel his bride. It's always the name. And now the church is his bride, right? But in Old Testament times, God had a real problem with his bride. He said, my bride has been unfaithful. He uses very harsh language. I think everyone's a teenager, at least. Congratulations, I've been raised by the way. He actually uses language like this. He goes, my bride has played the harlot. She's exposed herself to everyone that would walk by her under the tree. He's calling his bride out. That's harsh stuff right there. Get yourself slapped saying that in real life. And God is so mad at his bride, he said, I want to write you a certificate of divorce. Now, how mad does God have to be, the very one that says, I hate divorce, to want The guy who told us, don't get divorced, says, I'm ready to write a bill of divorce. Israel's been so unfaithful to me. Okay, you get it. (laughs) And then in, in books like Hosea and the first part of Jeremiah, there's a prophecy that says, God's like, I will meet my bride in the desert and I will forgive her of her iniquities and I will take her back to her. We'll remain there. It's a beautiful thing. So all the Jews, the Jews knew that Israel had been unfaithful and that, that there was a coming time when God re- reunited his bride which was his nation. So when Jesus uses this language like, I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my father's house. Hear the wedding bells ring, right? So this is where's the pool? Where's my match? Make sure I get a pool in there. It's heated to 65 degrees and like on the cool side, right? No, they're not thinking that. They're thinking of God is fulfilling an Old Testament promise right here to be reunited with His people, Israel. All right. I got some cool writings on that. I'm not going to read you because it will belabor the point. But if, if you want more information on it, it is pretty awesome. Remember when it talks about the whole point of this is that wherever he is, we will be. Now, I know you're asking, it's like, well, what a cop-out. What's going to happen? Where do we live? How does this play out? So let me give you some ideas, okay? Go to 1 Corinthians 2.9. This is not what the text is about, but, you know, we should talk about this. Because this is, if you ever talk to an unbeliever, there's a lot. If you ever talk to an unbeliever, does anyone know anyone who's not a believer? Most people. But one question is, uh, there's this idea that when you die, Christians believe that we go live on a cloud, we play some harps, right? It might be a 24-7 worship fest, right? Which is like, sounds excruciating. And the Bible doesn't actually say any of this. Right? But 1 Corinthians 2.9 gives us a clue. It says, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We just don't know. It hasn't entered into our hearts. If you keep reading, the Bible says, now the Spirit has revealed some of this to us. But the point is, we don't know. Paul even says when he talks about our body, he goes, we don't know what our body is going to be like, but we know we'll be like him. This is all I know, we'll be like him. We can do some guessing on what that's like when we see Jesus' body. When we think about how we'll be living, it just hasn't, we don't know what God has prepared for us. Now, you're like, well, again, another compound. I'm going to show you something. And if you're taking notes, this is good to write down. This is not mine. Uh, I think I lifted this from Tim Mackey. But he says, does God make all things new, or does he make all new things? And there's a difference when we think about what's going to happen in the future after we die and after he comes back. All new things for all things new. The scripture tells us that he makes all things new, not all new things. So we can start to get a clue of what it's going to be like. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he talks about us as believers. Look what this says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, when you got saved, did you get a new body? Did you get a new mind? Did my hair grow back like I was promised? 
these things happen. Something he made me do. He didn't make a new it's like a new thing, but it's still in me. Now, if we use this same picture, go to Revelation 21.1. This is God making after he recreates everything. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Who else had passed away? Us. And the sea was no more. So, I would argue that our future boat is actually still on this planet. I think at the consummation of all things, we still live on the planet Earth. Because the Bible says he rules the nations. That Jesus sets up his throne physically in Jerusalem. So the idea of living in heaven, where God is right now, is a temporary spot. God's plan from the beginning was to live on this earth with humanity. Right? He walked in the cool of the day. He set up a temple. And when sin came, man gets kicked out. God goes away. It's a planet under judgment. Right? We have types that are in heaven, like the temple is a type of what is seen in heaven. But it's not, we're not perfect. He comes back and he makes all things new, not all new things. The earth is, this is where we're at. So, th- this is my conclusion on these things. So when you see, I've gone to prepare a place for you, we get to live with Jesus and the Father because of his death. That is how we prepare the place. Trace is going to talk next week about the spirit he says, look, I won't leave you as orphans, not to steal his text. He goes, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. But Jesus physically doesn't come back. He sends his spirit. Okay? So he's like, look, I'm gone for this window. I'm preparing a place for you. He uses a marriage metaphor that where I am, you will be. Friends, we now have the spirit. Whether we're alive or we're dead, we are where he's at. And if you really want to get deep with it, Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. Right? Did you not say that? So let's look at the word, my father's house. When Jesus grabbed the lid, he's flipping over tables. Where was he? What did he call that? Don't make my father's house. Place of merchandise, right? Wait a minute. So the temple is my father's house. Jesus said, I'm going to my father's house. Then Jesus, after he does that, he says, destroy this temple in three days and I will rise it up. He now calls himself the father's house. The temple is the Father's house. Jesus is the Father's house. And so where is the Father's house? Where is this room going to be prepared? The Father's, God's ultimate goal is to dwell in us. So could you say that you're in the Father's house? Is that fair? Am I abusing the scripture? Nobody wants to say yes. <laughs> Who lives on the inside of you when you're saved? The Spirit. Like the Godhead, right? He's in us. Jesus said, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me. When you get saved, you become a new creation because you are filled with what? Don't be scared. You're not heretics. I'm not telling you you are God. Like, don't worry, there's no weird conclusion where you now rule a planet and I'm following God. You are not. I am not. But the greater one lives inside of us. We are the temple now. Are we, are we not the temple of God? I mean, the, Paul straight up says that, right? How can you sleep with a prostitute? How can the temple of God go and join himself with this? We straight up get called the temple of God. We are the Father's house. So obviously he's not talking about some mansion in the sky. There's something much deeper and much more profound going on here. That where I am, you may be also. We don't have to go to him. He comes to us. Jesus always comes. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to my Father to prepare a room for you that where I am, you may also be. Awesome. Right? We are now a part of this temple. Saved humanity together is built together to be a dwelling place for the most high God. I'm excited about it. Amen. You can do what you want with it. If anybody asks you, oh, Christians believe you live on a cloud and you play... A heart. Just like, actually, no, when this whole thing wraps up, we're still going to be on earth. Right? It's still, I mean, this is my, there's a lot more, a lot more scriptures we can go into. But anyways, let's go to John 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, what is Thomas's nickname? Yeah. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can, how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Now, 
Thomas and the disciples here, to me, are playing a forgetful game because Jesus has been telling everybody where he's going. If you look at John 7.33, look at this little gem. It says, Jesus said, I am with you only a little while longer, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. We're going to see three or four more times where Jesus says, I'm returning to the Father. I'm returning to the Father. I'm returning to the Father. This is the language he uses in John. He says, my hour has come, and his hour is to go back to the Father. So when Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Yeah, you do, right? He says, I'm going to the Father. Well, all right, Jesus, well, how do we know the way? You notice that this is, we, we've translated this correctly because Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the who? The Father, except through me, right? So we know Jesus is going to the Father. And he says, look, if you want to go to the Father, I am the way. Now, this is the sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. We have one more, so if you're keeping track, playing at home and seeing all these, this is the sixth I am statement. And some people will say, is it he's the way, he's the truth and the life? Yes, but he's really the way. And the way is stable because of the truth and because of life. Does that make sense? The way is not the way without truth, right? Uh, Jackie and I were speaking this morning about how truth is becoming more and more irrelevant to conversations, even within the church, right? Okay, really quick, so how do I explain this? This is what I told Jackie. Sorry, Jackie. I really didn't actually, that was, this was not my message, but I think it makes sense. So let's go back to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> oh, man. Does anyone here want to watch the office? This is awesome. Kobe's like, I should go back to the beginning, but I think I need to go back further. <laughs> it's like, let's go back to the very, let's go back to page one of the Bible. So God makes man and woman, sets them up in the garden. And, and it's a beautiful garden. It's lush, there's trees, and everything man can possibly need. God's there, and he walks around and talks with his humanity. He says, hey, you can eat anything, you can do whatever you want, but don't eat from this tree. And it's the tree called the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that sounds great, and some people say, that, well, now man knows know the difference between good and evil. Well, I would actually argue with you that knowledge of good and evil is much more deeper than this, is they now decide what is good and evil, right? Because we can read a lot of other texts where it says, oh, this person didn't have the knowledge of good and evil until they got older, right? So it's not just simply knowing. Your two-year-old knows that they're evil, right? They, you know what good and evil is. You're taught these things. God actually told them. Don't eat from this, right? So there was a knowledge of a will of don't do this, do this. So apparently it can't mean that. So what happens is humanity takes it upon themselves to decide what is right and wrong. This is the, the, the original sin in, my, in my, my view, right? Because the one thing God kept for himself is to tell us what is best for us. He knows the difference between good and evil. Some things may look good to us, but we find out they're very, very bad. And this plays out throughout the entire Bible because Eve saw the apple. She saw that it was good looking. It was good for food, right? She was tricked. It looked good, but it killed her, right? Remember Pharaoh? He saw that uh, Abraham's wife was good to look at, and so he took Sarah. He, he took her, right? And then judgment came. And then he's like, Abraham, what did you do? Why did you lie to me? This thing plays out. It plays out. David saw that Bathsheba was a beautiful woman on the rooftop. He took her for himself. Judgment was brought down upon the house of David that was never departed. Right? All these things, all these things that look good, they decided, this is right, I'm the arbiter of truth. Well, when Jesus says, I am the way, I'm, because I am the truth and I am the life, he's reclaiming this idea that he is the truth. Jesus says hard things that we don't want to agree with. He's the truth. Because if you want to go to the Father, the only way is going to be through His truth, not our truth. Amen. That's why the expression, let me tell you my truth, should get popped right in the face, right? Because it's like, well, you may have a truth, but it's not ultimate truth. It's not true truth. I'm wrong about many things. I have things I believe to be true, but as I've gotten older, I find out I'm wrong about most things. Right? I've lied to myself. I've tricked myself. And it's not because I want to, it's because I don't know all things. I can't see all things. Right? We can do a, a, a clever story here. What's the uh, guy in Endgame? Endgame. The 
guy that sees all the millions of things. Doctor Strange. Have you guys all seen the Avengers movies? This is a relevant cultural reference. Anyways, there's this black board, and this guy's like, hey, there's millions of ways this could play out, but we only believe one. And Jesus is the same way. He's like, there's only one truth. We can all make up our own truth. We can believe in whatever gods we want. We can believe whatever. Fine. There's one way. He's the one. Know what he says, and it, he doesn't care if you like it or not. Right? It doesn't matter. It is the truth. It's solid. We trust it. It can be reliable. God never asks us for opinion. If we go back to page one of the Bible, it's the same story. You don't get to decide this. You can have whatever else you want. I decide the good and evil. Right? And we play by his rules. He made us. It's his plan. Right? He made it ultimately simple to save us. He says, believe in me. Right? You have faith in God, have faith in you. Okay. Have I beat the point pretty good? He's the way, he's the truth. Jesus himself is life. You go back to John chapter 1, you can read that. He is the light and he's the life of men. He's the one that gave us life. He was there in the beginning. All things were created through him and for him. There was nothing that was made that was made that was Jesus Christ himself did not have his hand in according to the gospel. Amen. Let's go to verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the work themselves. Now, if you've been paying attention, you may see a potential problem here, because Jesus says, look, I'm going away to who? It's like, Philip, what do you mean, show us the Father? Look at me, I'm the Father. Isn't that what he's saying? It's like, wait a minute, how can you go to the Father, but yet I see you, I see the Father. And this is solved really, really easily. Uh, don't get hung up on this, is Jesus so closely did everything the Father wanted him to say and do, you might as well be looking at the Father. That's really what it means. Are Jesus and the Father different gods? They're one, but different. We believe in a triune God, meaning three, so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we believe in three. And they are distinct, right? Because Jesus is going to say, look, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send another part of the Godhead. And the Godhead has always been in the entire Bible, right? When God created everything, who was in the beginning when God created everything? The Spirit was hovering over the waters. We just sang the song, It's Your Breath in Our Lungs. We, we've actually done an in-depth, in-depth teaching here on that. That it's the Holy Spirit's role as the life giver, right? It says when the Holy Spirit gives you breath, you become an, an object. When God breathed into humanity, right? You form man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed in him. He breathed his, it's called a ruach, by right? the spirit. He breathed in man. Man became a living being. But the Bible says that if you read uh, the Song of Solomon and the Psalms, that that same breath actually animates every living thing on this planet. It says when the baby deer is born, God breathes into the deer. When it, it, it gives birth to the spawn out in the field. All these things we don't see that happen all over this planet. It's God's spirit animating life. But he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, they're going to be, they're very different. But Jesus is so perfectly in tune with God, you might as well be looking at the Father. It's like, the Father wouldn't have said anything different. The Father wouldn't have done anything different. Matter of fact, not one thing would be different if the Father himself was here doing this himself. You see me, you've seen him. The Old Testament says, no man can see God at any time and live. Right? Moses said, Lord, show me, show me your glory. I want to see you. And God tells him, he's like, you can't see me and live. No man can see me. So he hides, hides in the cleft of a rock and covers him and goes by him. Right? And Jesus shows up and he's called the express image of the Father. In his essence, I think if, you, if we could look at the Father, which I don't think we can, we would die. But when we see Jesus, we see the Father because Jesus... He only does what the Father does. Not one thing more. And he's very clear about that. 
He said, look, if you don't believe my words, believe the works. I can only do these works because the Father is in me. And it's interesting just because the Holy Spirit plays the same thing. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And he speaks what Jesus speaks. It's awesome. Okay. So, that's how we explain that. Verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. <coughs> okay, this is where a lot of people get into false doctrine. Right? We, can, we, can, we can start twisting the scripture here and we can start running away with it. So let's talk about a couple terms here. He says, first of all, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So he says, whoever... Right? Are you a whoever? Okay. Break this down. I'm a whoever too. He says, so if I believe in him, I can do the works that Jesus does. Now, let's talk about the word works. What are some of the works that Jesus has done? Say again? He's healed people. He's taught people. That's a work. You ruined the surprise, Jackie. Okay, what other works has he done? He's raised people from the dead. That has happened. Yes. Say that one more time. He's fed people. Thank you. So how many people do you feed? Thousands. Thousands. Right? Five thousand. Multiply food. Any other works you can think of? Water to wine. Water to wine. He loved the unlovable. He loved the unlovable. These are all, the Bible calls these works. His works. So it's not just miracles. It's everything. Can you turn water into wine? Have a try. Have a try. Okay, there you go. Try it tonight. <laughs> we will quit pillar. We will start our own church. I'm going to revise what I'm about to tell you about this. No, so Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll do the works that I do. And then he says, and greater works than these you will do. So now we have to talk. We have works. We have that. Who's he speaking to? Everybody who believes on him. We have works identified, but now we have to talk about greater works. How do you do a greater work than raising someone from the dead who's been dead for four days. I'd argue you're not going to. Has anyone here multiplied food to feed the thousands? Now, how on earth are we going to do greater works than Jesus? And you're thinking, it's like, well, that word greater actually is a number. It's quantity. It doesn't mean that in the original language. You know, some people say, oh, it means greater because when there's four people doing all these works, it'll be greater in number. Six is greater than four. It doesn't mean that. That's not what that version of the word greater it means. Greater in quality. So now we have a problem. Either we're all missing the mark, or it means something different. Other proposal means something different. So let's talk about this. So to understand greater, we look back at the text and we think of who has been called greater. So go to Matthew 11, 11. Let's look at how the Bible uses this. This is interesting. Truly, truly, I say to you, so who's speaking? How do we know that? It's in red. There's only one guy in the Bible that drops truly, truly, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, in, uh, to you, among those born women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So why is John the greatest? Why is he the Muhammad Ali of prophets? Right. Because he was the very last one before the covenant changed. He's the greatest because he got to point to Jesus himself. All the other prophets said, there's one coming, there's one coming, but they didn't know who was this one. Right? The Son of Man is coming, the Son of David is coming, the Christ, the Messiah, all these names. John shows up and says, this is him. He's the greatest. Not because of who he is, because of what he got to do. And then the scripture, Jesus says something even crazier. But anyone in the kingdom is greater than he is. Oh, man. So are you greater than John the Baptist? Yes. Yeah. Or in the scripture, you are. Now, not because you're awesome. It's because now you get to live in this covenant. Does that make sense? It's greater because of what he has done in the timeline. Now, if we think about it, the greater works... Jesus calls him greater in the same way. Because he goes to the Father, anything we do is greater, he said, than anything I've done. Because we are now in this kingdom. Does that make sense? 
So John was the greatest to be pointed to Christ. And anyone that comes into the kingdom after this is greater than John because we're in this new era. Does that make sense? So anyone that does a single work after Jesus goes to the Father is considered a greater work because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. If you give somebody a cup of cold water, God says that is a greater work than Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Because we're in the kingdom. Because it advances the kingdom. That's a greater work. He says, look, you'll do the works that I do. And did the disciples do the works Jesus did? They evangelized, they raised the dead, they healed the, right? they healed the sick. They did all these things that Jesus did. And Jesus said, he goes, no student can be greater than their master. The student's greater than the teacher. So how can I do greater works? Obviously, we need to interpret this All it simply means is, is because he's gone to the Father, this work is now greater because it advances the kingdom of God. Every work before this was always pointing to Jesus. This is a big bottle. We had to wait for him. Everything after that becomes a greater work. Awesome. So friends, when you are doing any of these things, that we may all have different beliefs, can that can the sick be healed? I 100% believe the sick are still healed. I do believe the dead can still be raised. I think that God's arm is not short that any of these things should happen. Right? It's God that does it. It's not us. It's Him. All He says is believe. Every time a miracle happens, Jesus says, do you believe I'm able to do this? He's always looking at where people's faith is at. Right? Our job is to believe. So let's talk about this next thing. He says, verse 13, What if you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So does this mean God has lowered himself to become a gene? Hey, you know what? Now that I'm going to the Father, whatever you say goes. You got it. Is that what this means? Nope. Do some people believe that? Yes. Unfortunately. So what does it mean? Just like greater works. Some people believe greater. That means they'll actually be doing greater things than Jesus ever did. Right? Oh, if Jesus raised one, I'm going to raise up a whole cemetery. I'm going to clean out a whole hospital. Like they make these grand boats because they think they're greater than Jesus. Because that promise. We can't be greater than Jesus. We are not him. We're broken. Simple beings, right? Redeemed to a merciful Savior. So, we need to look at two things on this. He says, whatever you ask in my name, there's the first thing. You see this asking in the name, asking in the name. And this is all across the Bible. But for time's sake, I'm just going to cut to the punchline. Asking the name means, to, really, the best English translation would be is, if you pray for something to glorify my name, I will do it. That's the Michael translation. I think this best captures the spirit of it. Whatever you pray to glorify my name, that I will do. If we read James, so we're not going to do it now, but he says, He's like, here's the reason you're, again, my paraphrase, here's the reason your prayers don't get answered. First of all, you don't pray. That's a problem. Can't answer your prayer if you don't pray. Two, is when you do pray, the King James says, you ask amiss that you may spend it on, you may consume it on your own lusts. You're only asking because you want something for you. But the answer, the answer to prayer is to pray, to believe, and three is you're doing it for God's glory. That's the prayer that gets answered. How is this tied to his glory? When Lazarus was raised from the dead, why did Jesus say all this happened? Think. You guys speak louder time after that. To glorify his name. Jesus said, this was done that I may glorify the Father. Go back and read Lazarus. He said, Lazarus has died that I may glorify the Father. Sounds like an awfully weird way to glorify the Father is done. Now, was the death glorifying? No. Was the resurrection glorifying? 100%. We all die. In our death, we don't all glorify God, but it was the resurrection of this. So, you need to think long and hard when you pray is prayers that glorify God. Now, does your physical healing glorify God? It absolutely can. Does God meet your financial needs? Give us this day our daily bread? Like, does that glorify God? But God knows your heart, right? There's a scriptural precedent for praying for basic necessities. And God says, as long as we have food and clothing, let's do two things. Right? If our body is broken, there's a million promises in the Bible 
about God wanting and willing to heal our bodies. Because what are you going to do with that healed body once he does it? How does this glorify Jesus? He's after, Jesus wants to glorify the Father. Our job is to glorify Jesus. If you ask in my name, if you ask to glorify my name, this I will do. A lot of Christians haven't figured that out, but we don't seek honest prayer to glorify his name, to make his name great. Those are the prayers he's obligated to answer. When we get into prayer, we find out even in the Bible, like, we know Jesus isn't saying, I answer every prayer, because there's examples in the Bible where God straight up tells people nothing. One example would be Paul. He says, I have a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn is. I would love to argue about it. Actually, I have a very good idea of what I think that is. It's not what you think it is. It's not because I think I'm smarter. I think I'm a weirdo. But he prays about this, right? Like, I want to remove this thorn. Some people will say it's his bad eyes. I don't think it's any of these things. Probably wrong. Anyways, let's not argue about that. The thorn in the flesh. So he prays three times. First time he prays, nothing happens. Still there. Pray second time, still there. Now, most Christians quit. It's like, well, I asked God, He didn't do anything. Apparently, He doesn't want to do it. That is not the scriptural example. What Jesus says, not and what? Someone's going to pick up this door. Our job is to be faithful. We don't answer the prayers. We just, he tells us what to do. Not keep knocking. Ask. Receive, right? So the third time he asked, you can see God up there rubbing his temples. He's like, uh, no. I'm not going to do that. My grace, my strength is sufficient for your weakness, Paul. And you know what Paul says? Does he quit Christianity? Does he get on Facebook and blast Christians? Right? This prayer thing doesn't work. I'm an atheist. He's like, okay. Yeah, if that's the answer, then let's roll. Here's where we miss it. God does say But most of us don't stick around long enough for, to really know. Because sometimes the answer is yes, but you're just not sticking around. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't know what it means to wait on the Lord. You don't know what God is doing in your heart to make this answered prayer glorify God. Maybe he's like, i got to change some heart things. I do want to do this. This will glorify me, but not in your current state. Right? Jesus is here to glorify the Father. Sometimes it's just straight, you don't believe you'll do it. James teaches us that, right? You ask, you like a wave tossed to and fro. You just don't even know what you believe. Jesus doesn't do he doesn't play that game either. If you don't believe, you're not going to get answered to her. Right? So when Jesus tells the disciples here, say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything for my glory, I will do it. If we would seek his glory, Matthew 6.33, Andre, what is Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? And his righteousness, and what will he do? He'll give you everything the world is seeking after. If we would make our focus his kingdom, his glory, he will meet our needs. He's obligated to, right? I don't know what else to say on this. So this promise to answer prayer is 100% true. We're the ones that that messed this up. We pray selfish prayers. We have no faith. We don't labor in prayer. He's not a genie. He doesn't, I mean, that's not a relationship, right? If God just does whatever we want, we actually become greater than God. Because I'm going to pray for this, I'm going to get this. God's got no more say in this world because we're doing it. However, a a group of Christians that are praying, seeking His glory, Praying, God, what, what needs to be accomplished? But what should I be praying? How do I do this? Right? That will accomplish His will, will accomplish His glory. And friends, I'm here to tell you that I can point to several things we won't do it now, but God listens to His people. Where God's like, what do you guys want to do on this? This isn't 100% like God has already predetermined every little aspect about this. Even in heaven, there's a scene in, in I think it's in Chronicles where these angels and spirits, God is having a meeting. He's like, guys, what should we do about this? And the Bible straight up says people were pitching their ideas, and God said, I like that idea. It's a crazy scripture. But it's like, man, God is actually listening to this, right? We are his representatives down here on earth. He knows best. He knows what he wants to get accomplished. We shouldn't partake in it. Amen? Amen? Okay. Let's call it a day. Last thing is... 
So how do we sum up this passage? I think the first one is Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Whatever you are going to face, whatever you see in this, if we see Christian persecution, if you see sickness, if you see lack, first thing you got to do is you got to get your heart to check, right? Because Why? Because we believe in God and we believe in Jesus. Because we believe in him, we should automatically be driven to prayer. And Jesus, here, here's, here's the summary. Don't fear. Believe in me. Pray. Right? If we have to really sum up what he said. Now he's dropped other things. I'm preparing a place for you. We're speaking of some other things. But this is it. Don't fear. Believe. Pray. When life gets tough, you're going to go through some rough times coming up. Don't fear. What's next? Believe. Pray. You know, this is the message in the simplest form. As a believer, my advice to you, don't fear. Why don't we fear? Because we believe in him. Fear is real. It's going to happen to all of us. If you could stop and look at him, the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. He is perfect love. He will still your heart. We just read, he gives us this peace. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. We just read that in the scripture, right? He will give us that perfect peace. And once we have that, you get on your knees and you pray how this will glorify him. There is a way out that glorifies him. He doesn't promise it's always the easiest way. He doesn't say it's not going to cost you his life. Right? Because Peter, all these guys are going to die. Jesus says, yeah, this is going to happen, but not yet. So sometimes glorifying God may mean even your death, the ultimate sacrifice. Sometimes it may mean complete deliverance like Lazarus. We don't know how this plays out, but he does. And where you and I want to be is at whatever it means to glorify you. That's the perfect will and the perfect peace of God. Amen? Let's pray.